As we go to open God's word, let's ask him to bless it to us. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, your righteousness is righteous forever, and your law is true. Trouble and anguish have found us out, but your commandments are our delight. Your testimonies are righteous forever, and we pray that you would give us understanding that we may live. With our whole hearts we cry, answer us, O Lord. We will keep your statutes. We call to you, save us, that we may observe your testimonies. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Please be seated, and please turn with me to the psalm we just sang, Psalm 33. Psalm 33. And we're going to consider this psalm in the light of our confession of faith that we made from Lord's Day 9 of the Catechism, but our God and Father, the Creator. So Psalm 33, we'll read the whole psalm together, and let's pay careful attention, for this is God's own word. Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Make melody to him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. For the word of the Lord is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. The people whom he has chosen as his heritage. The Lord looks down from heaven and sees all the children of man. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth, he who fashions the hearts of all of them and observes all their deeds. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse has a false hope for salvation, and by its great might it cannot rescue. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him on those who hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. Thus far, the reading of God's word, may he bless it to us. Well, we've been considering, starting the consideration of the content of our faith that we have in the the Heidelberg Catechism, a summary of what is promised to us in the gospel and what we're called on to believe. And the first thing we confess as part of the Apostles' Creed is that we believe in God the Father Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth. 
Um, and the catechism contains a really wonderful summary of what that means. Um, as a pastor, you run the risk every time you preach through the catechism of saying, now this is a really good question. Um, and then you end up with saying 129 times, now this is a really good question. Uh, but this is a really good question and answer. Um, it really summarizes well who our God is as Father, who He is as Creator, who He is as the sustainer of all that He's made by His counsel and His providence. Um, it really is a wonderful question, a wonderful comfort to God's people, and a privilege to know God as Father. Um, if we think about the whole history of, um, of God's people, it was they knew God was their father, but they weren't sort of used to calling him their father. That was not the way they were used to addressing him uh, for most of the life of God's people. The, the privilege and the pleasure of, ad- of addressing God as father is really taught the most clearly by our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, he's the one who really teaches God's people to think of the father uh, when they pray especially, he said, pray, our Father who art in heaven. Uh, that was a wonderful privilege for God's people to understand the Father in that way, in the way Jesus revealed him to us. Um, and maybe, maybe even more gloriously after his resurrection, um, after he tells Mary not to cling to him, what does he say to her in John 20, verse 17? Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Uh, Jesus had never addressed the disciples as his brothers before. Uh, Go to my brothers and tell them I ascend to my father and your father, to my God and your God. It's really in Jesus Christ that we come to understand the father, the first person of the Trinity as our father and see something of what that means for us as the people of God to know this God as our Father, to know that this God has become our Father through what Jesus Christ has done. Um, And so this great God is our God, and this great Father is our Father. Uh, He's always been the eternal Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's become our Father through our Lord Jesus Christ. And that is a wonderful truth to be celebrated by God's people, and to know what it is to confess that this Father is our Father. And if we want to see something of the greatness of this, I think Psalm 33 really helps us to do that. Uh, Psalm 33 really is a celebration of the strength of our Creator God, this God who has become our Father in Jesus Christ. And the psalm is a wonderful psalm filled with celebration, and it celebrates the power of His Word, the perfection of His will, and the preservation of his might. Uh, that's what the psalm is really celebrating. What does God do for his people? Why is this God to be celebrated? He's to be celebrated because of the power of his word, because of the perfection of his will, and the preservation of his might. Um, and that's, that's what the psalm communicates to us, I think, is what we see also in this question of the catechism. God is celebrated because of the power of his word. Uh, Psalm 33 in the first three verses really calls God's people to praise him, really calls them to lift up praise to his name. And we could spend a lot of time thinking about those verses we're not going to. It's a huge call to praise and it, it should spark us to wonder what is this great activity of our God that particularly the psalmist wants us to be filled with an idea of so that we burst forth in this kind of praise. And what does the psalmist want to point us to? To the creative power of our God. 
the power of his word um, and the quality of the work that word produces. The psalm really is celebrating that creative power. And that's where we start in that confession of our father in question 26. What do you believe when you say, I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, that the eternal father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who out of nothing created heaven and earth and everything in them. Uh, We celebrate him as creator because that's what he did. He created heaven and earth and everything in them. And how did he do it? He did it by the power of his word. That's what the scriptures testify to. That's what Psalm 33 testifies to. Verse 6 tells us, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made. And by the breath of his mouth all their host. All that exists exists by the word of our God. Now that's something that we confess all the time. Uh, We confess it every Lord's Day uh, that God created everything. And it can be something that's so commonly said that we don't pause and reflect on the magnitude of what we're saying when we say that. That everything that exists was called into existence by the powerful word of our God. That he spoke And it all was. That he commanded it to be and it all sprung into being. And Psalm 33, I think, helps us to understand something of the magnitude and the glory of what we're talking about when we say that he spoke and it all came into existence. What came into existence? The highest heavens came into existence by the word of his voice. Right? God spoke and the heavens were made. And he breathed all its host into existence. Maybe we're privileged to live in a time unlike many people lived in to really understand the magnitude of the universe. Something of the magnitude of the universe. Um, It's a vast universe really beyond our ability to comprehend. Um, We can sort of, we can repeat back what we hear from scientists about the the magnitude of our world, but it's hard for us to really grasp the immensity of it. Remember a few years ago reading a news story about a new quasar that they had discovered out in space. Um, Don't ask me what a quasar is, but it's out in space somewhere. Um, I know that much. So, But they were talking about this quasar out in space, and they said this particular quasar is 12.8 billion light years away. Now, if you know that light travels faster than 186,000 miles per second, at that speed it would take light to travel 12.8 billion years to get from that where this quasar is to where we are. Now, that's a scope that's so big it's hard to really fathom. That there is this celestial body that is that far away. That there is space that far away for this thing to reside in. The article also said that this quasar was as bright as 420 million of our suns. Again, I don't know the science behind all that. That sounds pretty bright to me. Um, I know the sun is pretty bright, so that sounds 420 million times brighter. Um, it talked about the mass of this quasar and said that it was as massive as 12 billion of our suns. When I looked, our sun is as massive as 333,000 earths. 
So you knew I wasn't going to try to go 330,000 times 12 billion and try to give an answer. That breaks my calculator, so it's, and I take off my shoes and it's over, you know. Um, but what is that all saying? It's super far away and super bright and super massive. And what does the scripture tell us? That to make that vast space where this exists, God, all God had to do was say, be. And that space blew into existence. And that massive bright quasar, all God had to do was say, and it leapt into existence out there. And not just it, but our earth and our sun and everything that fills the host of heaven. To do all of that was but a word, was but a breath. That's something of the power that our God has. And when we, when we back up to really think of what it means to say, by a word he created the heavens. And by his breath he filled them with their host is to say something beyond our capacity to really understand. That's what prompted these psalm singers to say, you know, you need to write a new song for something like that. It's too remarkable for the old songs. Um, This is something amazing our God has done. From the highest heights he does these wonders into the deepest depths he's God. Right, we can, we can go looking at with our telescopes far into the world um, and see what God has made. And we can look through microscopes and see deep into the world what God has made. And it's hard to know sometimes which is the more miraculous. Um, that God is able to make those huge bodies or that God is able to make those tiny bodies. But whether you go to the highest heights or the deepest depths, it's God who is managing them and God who is moving them. That's what verse 7 says. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. All the mighty seas that we see and the depths of them, God just moves them around wherever he wants. He's told them exactly where they may be and where they may not be. He separated the waters at creation. Some of the prophets celebrate the fact that not only does God tell the ocean how far it may come, but he borders it with sand, which we pick up and it just seems to blow away. But God says, here's the sand, here's as far as you may come and no further. And the seas do what he says. That's power. That's a power the likes of which we can't really understand. And if that's not amazing enough, Job, when he reflects on all of that power and all of that glory and creation, says, and you know, that's just the beginning of what he's able to do. When you've looked at that, you've only really scratched the surface of his power. Um, There's a verse in Job 26 that I love when Job was reflecting on all of God's creative work and gets to the end of reflecting on all of his creative work And then he says, behold, these are but the outskirts of his ways. And how small a whisper do we hear of him. But the thunder of his power, who can understand? Blowing that massive space into being and filling with a host is the whisper of what he can do. 
We haven't even seen the thunder of his power. That's easy for him. Right? That's the work of one week for him. Not even a full week, six days. Right? To do all of that, um, that's, that's just easy for him. That's a whisper of his power. What that should do is fill us with this sort of sense of awe that this God exists. And this God would care about us. And that this God is so mighty in power. Um, because before we move on from just thinking about the, the massive greatness of what he's created. We also know that not only is it this remarkable display of power. But it's also a remarkable display of his goodness in everything he does. That there's a moral quality imbued in everything that he does. Notice how the Psalms don't, the Psalm doesn't just celebrate the massiveness of what he does. That's part of it. But it also celebrates the goodness of what he's done. Um, how his character is seen in all that he does. Verses 4 and 5 talk about that. For the word of the Lord is upright. And all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. And the earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. Um, when the Lord made everything that he made and stood back and looked at it, he said, it is good. Now, part of the point of the psalm is to say, it's great. But we also know that what he made great, he also made good. All of those things in verses 4 and 5 are moral qualities. Uprightness, faithfulness, righteousness, justice, steadfast love. The creation has a systemic wholeness. The word that brought it into the world is an upright word. Um, The world that was brought into being was done in faithfulness. Faithfulness to who God is. It was imbued with a righteousness and a justice. It is filled with his steadfast love. That particular kind of covenant love and loyalty that God shows to his people. It's not just great, you see, it's good. It's glorious, it's imbued with something of his character. Every part of it is good and the whole of it together is very good. That's the awesomeness of what God has made. I remember one of our seminary professors saying, you know, awesome is a word that gets way overused by Southern Californians. Everything is awesome, awesome. Um, He said, well, you know, only what God does is awesome. It's a word that really we should just reserve for him. But this is awesome in its true sense of the word. And that's, in fact, how the whole world should react when it considers what God has done Verses 8 and 9, let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. Why? Because he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. That's what it means when we say, I believe that God created the heavens and the earth and everything in them. That he is a great God and a good God. 
And all his work is done in faithfulness, and his work is filled with steadfast love. It's glorious, this world that he has made. And it would be a very strange thing if the the Father made a world like this and then left it to tend to itself. It would be almost insane to think of that. That a God who would take the care to make the kind of world that we observe. um, That he would make it that way and then just leave it to be governed by chance. Or the things that just happen. Um, And the psalm celebrates, no, not only did God make the world, but God manages the world. We don't just celebrate the power of his word, we celebrate the perfection of his will. That the same good God who poured himself into his creation is continuing to be active in that creation and managing and moving it. That's why almost always when we talk about creation, providence comes right behind it. Uh, that's what happens in, in, our, in our question 26. We move right from thinking about God's creative work to his work in providence. That the eternal father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who out of nothing created heaven and earth and everything in them, there is creation, and who still upholds and rules them by his eternal counsel and providence. Um, God made a world so that he could make a history. God made a world so that he could work in that world the purposes for which he made it. Um, I like what one commentator said. I thought it was a really interesting point. He said, in an age when, when the biblical doctrine of creation is all too frequently discussed in conjunction with science, the psalmist offers a reminder that the creation must be reflected on in conjunction with history. For in engaging the creation science debate, it is possible to miss entirely the powerful thrust of the biblical doctrine of creation, namely that God's providence and dominion in history, whether ancient or modern, presupposes his role as creator and orderer of human existence in the world. That's a really interesting point, isn't it? We kind of can get obsessed with creation and science, um, and that can lead to a lot of bad science, just as There's a lot of science that leads to bad theology. There's a lot of people who really know their theology doing bad science, and I'm not sure that helps anyone. One of the more interesting things about that quasar, I'll I'll get off of this last time I mentioned the quasar, Um, but one one of the things that was so interesting about this article is they said it's so big and so massive and so far away, it can't be there. It's there, but it shouldn't be there. It's, it's too young to be that far away. It's, it's in an old part of space as a young quasar. It shouldn't be there. Um, but they said the strange thing is it's there. So we really don't know what to make of that. Um, it just sort of makes me think that he who sits enthroned in heaven laughs uh, because he breathed it into existence, whether you can understand why it's there, when it's there, um, but, you know, we, we, can get, we can get way above our heads with science. I've demonstrated that, I think, ably tonight. Um, but, but I wrote that this guy said, you know, what we really should do is think creation more in terms of history. Because God didn't make the world so that we could argue about the days of creation and argue about how we made the world and argue how it came into existence. 
What does he want us to understand about the world? I made it, and every bit of this world that I make, I'm controlling. I have ordered it. I'm moving it. Now, I'm not trying to underplay the importance of science. The only reason you can do science is because of the orderliness of the world. Right? The speed of light was variable. Um, if, if everything in the world was variable, there'd be no fixed point to do any kind of science on the world of any kind. The whole reason we can do science is because there's an orderly world. That's a testimony to the God who made it. But the God who made it is moving it not just so that it functions orderly in its construction, but in its purpose. So that it does what he made it to do. To advance his cause through human history. And that's what the psalm celebrates, the perfection of his will. That he is the great God who moves history along the way he wants it to go. So that it's not subject to the human forces in this world that are pushing and pulling it. But God himself is moving the world. And he moves it just as effortlessly as he breathed it into being. Despite the fact that now in the world it's filled filled with resistance to him. There are people in, in the world now who don't like his creation who rebelled against it, who don't like him being the orderer of it and rebel against his ordering. Um, You know, when there's nothing, there's nothing to fight against you. Once you've breathed everything into existence, now you have a people rebel against you, now they're against you. Should the hostility of the world worry us when it comes to God's management of history? Psalm says no. No. It was as easy for him to breathe it into being as it is for him to manage its affairs. What happens when people rise up against him? When the great plans of the world try to oppose what he's doing in the world? Well, verses 10 through 12 tell us. What happens when the nations rise up against God? The Lord brings the counsels of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the people's. You can make all the plans you want. God will tear them down if they're opposed to him. You raise it up, he brings it to nothing. You plan and plan, and he frustrates your plan. What about his plan? What about his counsels? Verse 11, the counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. We've said before, God doesn't have a plan B. God just has the plan. Because it can't be opposed. And it can't be thwarted. And even the things that seem to go against it, he turns to his purpose. His counsels stand. The plans of his heart carry forward to all generations. That's why it's such a blessing to be his people. Because you're on the side that cannot help but prevail in the history of this world. Because it's ordering that history. It's declaring the end of that history from the beginning. That's why the psalmist says in verse 12, Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. Blessed is the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. Um, That's what that word for blessed that can also mean just happy. You're a happy people 
if you're the Lord's chosen people. Um, That's what it really means to be on the right side of history. The happy side of history is God's side of history. The plans that don't fail. The counsel that comes to always to the point that he makes it come for the goodness of his people. And how much more is that blessed reality, that happiness for the people of God revealed when the Lord Jesus Christ comes into the world and helps us to understand that we are his nation, we are his chosen heritage, but even more to the point, we are his children. The children he loves. There were glimpses of that in the Old Testament. Israel is my firstborn son. There were glimpses of that, but Jesus Christ is the one who makes it clear. You're not just his nation, you're not just his chosen heritage, you're his children. And the Father loves his children. And the Father is working everything for the good of his children. And so if you're a child of the Father, be happy. It's a glorious thing to have this God as your Father. Um, And that's the the final part of the, the thing that we celebrate in our confession, that he upholds it all, he's governing it all by his counsel and providence. This one who does it is my God and Father for the sake of Christ his Son. He's great and he's good and he's our Father. He's, he's moving all things for the sake of his dearly loved children. That's something of the glory of knowing this God, of belonging to this God. And he's not just managing the big affairs of all of human history, right? It's, it's not as if he's just concerned with the big pieces of the puzzle and the whole human history, but he's, he's concerned down to the lives of every single individual. Uh, notice the, the repeated use of the word all in verses 13 through 15. The Lord looks down from heaven and sees all the children of man. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. There's, there is to be no thought among the people of God that Sure, the Father is concerned with the big things of the world, but I'm not sure he's got his eye on the individual particular things that are going on around me or going on within my life. Maybe he's got bigger things to worry about than what's going on with me. And what what does this psalm celebrate? No, the Lord is moving the great nations, the great events of history. He's behind all of that. And he's also in every individual life. There's not a person on this earth that escapes his notice. Um, That's what God is saying in this psalm. And I think this has a particular help to people who live in an unjust world. That God says to them, I see those who are doing the injustice. He says to them, I see you. When someone starts a war, God can say to the one starting a war, I see what you're doing. I made your heart. I know exactly what's going through your mind. 
This is intended to be a great comfort to people living in a world of injustice. God's people have always been a small people in the world. We have not been the movers and shakers of the world. We are usually the subjects of injustice. And that's why it's a helpful reminder that our great God who moves all of heaven and earth is also the God who looks on every single heart, observes every single deed, and assures us that He will take it into hand. He will take it into management. Because He looks down from heaven. He looks on from His throne. He's the one who fashioned and observes. He's the one who will stand in judgment of it all. He is a great God. And by his perception and power, everything will be taken into his hand. And we can have that confidence because he has a might that surpasses all other might in the world. He doesn't just see it. He has the power to deal with it. Uh, his might is great. And that's why we have the repetition of all in verses 13 through 15 to show he's looking at everything. And then we have the re- repetition of the word great to talk about all those things that are not, not as great as he is. Verse 16 says, A king is not saved by his great army, and a warrior is not delivered by his great strength, and the war horse is a false hope for salvation. By its great might it cannot rescue. Those are all great things, but they're not great enough. They're not great enough to save, and they're not great enough to rescue, and they're not great enough to deliver when you need it. But where is the greatness to save and to rescue and deliver? It's in our God. And God's people can hope in the preservation of His might. All those traditional sources of strength as one person said, are as nothing before the might of the Lord. They do not offer dependable strength in the crisis, nor do they bring victory. Where is the only true and dependable source of salvation, of rescue, of deliverance? It's in our God. That's why we're called to hope in the preservation of His might. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear Him on those who hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. The wicked should be afraid that the Lord's eye is on them. But for those who belong to God, it should be a great comfort that his eye is on us. Because he's looking at us not to judge us, but to deliver us. His eye is on us to say, what do they need that I might give it to them? Um, One commentator said, here the Lord's eye is quick-eyed love, alert to danger, sensitive to need. That's why the Lord's eye is on us. To be alert to our danger, to be sensitive to our need, to be quick-eyed love for his people. For those who are doing what? For those who fear him and who are waiting for him. Who are hoping in his steadfast love. Those who are filled with faith and hope in their God. Uh, For them, God is looking always to help us. 
And that's why those who are in Christ really don't have anything to fear ultimately in this world. Because his eye is on us to help us. Um, When we are afraid of him, we don't have anything else to fear. Um, When we're hoping in him, that's a hope that doesn't disappoint. Because God does not fail his children. We don't have a father who ever fails his children. No one has ever trusted in him and regretted it. No one has ever hoped in him and found their hope unrealized. God is a dependable source of strength and salvation. And he, will, he can be trusted to preserve us no matter what comes. That's why the second part of question and answer 26 is so glorious. I trust in God so much that I do not doubt he will provide whatever I need for body and soul and will turn to my good whatever adversity he sends upon me in this veil of tears. He will deliver our souls from death and preserve us alive in famine. Uh, His care goes beyond this life into the next. Uh, That's the glory of the God who preserves us. Uh, Because this Father is for us always. Always looking out for the good of his people. It's the truth of Second Chronicles sixteen nineteen or sixteen nine. For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless toward him. He is able to do this because he is Almighty God. He's willing to do this because he is a faithful father. And when God's people really come to understand the personal, practical implications of this truth, the fatherhood of God and all that it means for us to have this God as our Father, it should produce comfort and rejoicing and praise. That's almost what the the psalm ends by doing, is almost backing up after celebrating who God is and just sort of being amazed that this is our God. Verse 20 says, our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. Um, When we need hope, we look to the Lord. When we need help, we look to the Lord and we find it. Um, We trust in him. He's the source of our gladness. Um, He's the one who makes our hearts glad. He's the one who we trust in as the one we know. Our heart is glad in him when we understand who he is for his people, because we trust in his holy name. His name is his revealed character. And who are we trusting in? His character's already been revealed in this word. He's upright, he's faithful, he's righteous, he's just, he's filled with steadfast love for his people. And to really know the revealed character of the Father, we need look no further than the Lord Jesus Christ. Because he says to us, you want to understand what the Father is really like in all of his love? Look at me. Because if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I and the Father are one. Um, That's where we really see the Father who loves us and why that should be such a source of gladness and joy and comfort to us. To know who he is. To know what he has promised to do for his people. It's a true glory. One commentator said of these verses, this is hope in its surest form. Patient, 
confident, buoyant in gladness, informed in trust, and above all, focused not on the gift, but on the giver. This hope will never disappoint us. This hope will never disappoint us. That's hope in its surest form is to hope in God the Father, the maker of heaven and earth and everything in them, who's become my Father for the sake of Jesus Christ, His Son. And so our prayer that ends the psalm is just that the Father would continue to be who He's always been. What else can you say but just keep being our Father? Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us even as we hope in you. What a blessing to have this God as our Father through our Lord Jesus Christ. To him be the glory now and forever. Amen. Let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, when we do consider the work of your hands, we are amazed not only at your power, at your greatness, but at your goodness. And to know that you are our Father for Christ's sake, the one who is moving all things to the end for which you've determined them, and that you are carrying them along for the good of your people, that you are the great source of strength that we can always trust in our time of need. We pray that we would put our faith and trust in your Son and know that to have your Son means to have you as our Father. And as great as we know your Son to be, even he testified and said, you are greater than all. And so, Father, we thank you for becoming our Father in the Lord Jesus Christ and by sending your Son into the world that we might be saved. And we thank you that you are caring for us, that you are watching over us, giving us all that we need and promising to turn all the difficulties that you send us in this veil of tears for our good and ultimately for our glory. So we thank you for this goodness that you have showered upon us undeserving sinners. We pray that we would give you the glory. Hear us, we pray in Jesus' name.